On this episode of Sustained, we explore American beef, whistleblowers, responses, and how consumers are changing the meat industry as we know it. So I feel like every few years you see something crop up like uh, Food Inc. or similar things talking about the meatpacking industry or beef or some product that's been completely misrepresented and everyone seems to have a fake idea of how it's produced or what the industry looks like. I feel like these things are always sort of punctuated by a lack of change surrounded with them and sort of this big discussion or moment without any sort of follow-up or meaningful improvement. Which is... I mean, that's not just a recent thing. This has been going on for a long time. Um, And we can sort of cast that back to... 1906 Chicago with Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. And so like this, this sort of problem of a whistleblower or a muckraker or what have you, but someone sort of reveals an industry for what it is. There's a massive outcry. We see change, whether effective or ineffective, sort of started, at least in this industry, the food and meatpacking industry around back then. So Sinclair was born September 20th, 1878 in Baltimore, Maryland. His upbringing informed his later sort of activism and writing. So I think it's important to note a little bit. Um, His father was a liquor salesman who struggled a lot with alcoholism um, while his mother was incredibly religious. And that sort of later influenced a lot of um, Sinclair's perspectives on all of these issues. And so from there, we sort of follow him as he goes through school and becomes this intense socialist radicalized writer where we see a very like sharp distinction in his mind between sort of the physical and the mental and becomes this deep academic obsessed with the sort of proper existence. He doesn't drink. He hates any sort of sexual impropriety, all sort of things reflecting back from his dad. I mean, you see lots of interesting moments in his biography of just sort of how a little bit of a quirky guy he was. He took Renaissance art classes in college and quit because he was uncomfortable with nude images. And yet he decides to go undercover in the meatpacking district in Chicago and faced with some of the most horrific working conditions that anyone has ever sort of like listened or heard about in the middle class and this his target audiences that he began to reach out to. Uh, let yeah. me just cut in and, and ask, what was it that shifted his interest to the meatpacking industry? Was there something that catalyzed that interest? Did it spawn from something of his upbringing or did he have family members involved in the meatpacking industry? What was it in your opinion? So this was a really interesting um, moment in his life because he struggled a lot as an author in terms of finances. After the Civil War, his family sort of had a loss of monetary fortune. Well, not his family in general. He was born Mm -hmm. after the Civil War, but his general finances took a lot of hits. So he didn't come into the world with a lot of money. And his attempts at writing were not initially successful. In 1904, he published a a text called Manassas about the Civil War that began to actually make more money and become profitable and made him a noted leftist writer, at least in some elements. And so his interest in the meatpacking district actually came when he was reached out to to be commissioned to write about the meatpacking and to do a sort of down and out type book about this. It sort of becomes a fiction that is informed by extensive hands-on research. 
to actually depict the legitimate situations that these workers faced and that this industry relied on. And what was that depiction? What was the landscape of the meatpacking industry like during that time that he was capturing it? So to cover the depiction of the meatpacking district and the, so that industry as he came into it, we have to sort of turn the clock back just before he entered the picture and sketch it out a little bit from there, where before some adjustments in the late 1800s in terms of trains and refrigeration techniques, meatpacking was largely localized, seasonal, and it was a substantial industry, but it was not the type of centralized industry that we see up here in the late 1800s with focuses in places like Chicago, where you can get to most of the country as it was with train lines and with refrigerated stuff, they could reach markets in the East Coast like New York. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that combined with a series of very not quite monopolistic, but monopoly adjacent mergers in meatpacking companies. By the time that Sinclair entered, you ended up with what was sort of referred to by some as the big four, the big six, referring to different meatpacking plants or companies, uh, which were Armour and Company, Swift and Company, Morris and Company, and Hammond and Company. These four, and then if you looked at the big six, which was them and then the next two, controlled something like 95% of the meatpacking industry at that time. So when Sinclair comes into it, you see just a total, sort of like a total black box of this industry. And so Sinclair's approach is he reaches out to a number of contacts in Chicago that were a large part of how he was sort of informed there was a union rep, Ernest Poole, a socialist organizer and journalist, A.M. Simmons, and a medical writer named Adolf Smith. So these, amongst others, sort of helped Sinclair place himself into this community in Chicago and start to get an understanding of what was going on in different forms. He didn't necessarily want to take the approach that many others had in other situations. Like if you look Jack London and Down and Out writers who sort of went anonymously into communities and it became sort of almost like ethnographical approach Mm -hmm. to a group where they're like, oh, look at look at how this group exists in this situation. Sinclair had a slightly different interest, but there was ultimately this contrasting element of this middle class writer sort of engaging in this lower class and presenting it as this sort of as a spectacle, um, as something that people want to read about, which is certainly one way to approach this issue. And at the time, it did sort of its purpose. And he wasn't the first to do it. Ernest Poole, the union rep I mentioned, had also done a sort of a fictional autobiography about a Lithuanian immigrant and his union that Teddy Roosevelt read and actually... Um, If you look at that text compared to Sinclair's Jungle, you see a lot of similarities. Sinclair's Jungle is also a fictional story about a Lithuanian immigrant. And so you see this image start to take shape of Sinclair Sinclair going and talking to the sort of contacts he would talk to before getting into the actual communities. Then after, because he's made the discussions and those connections, he got a few chances to go into plants interview a lot of people and this sort of inform this in, this influences final depiction which was 
one of it, the text itself is has very graphic details mm-hmm. that you really can't get more graphic than if you just showed a video. And even then, you wouldn't necessarily be able to ca- capture it because a lot of the issues are not immediately visible. So let me ask you, you know, you mentioned that Sinclair was entering this black box and presumably no one had quite entered this industry before. Sure, he had some people on the inside that might have allowed him to have that ease of access. But what was that depiction like and what was the initial response to the portrait that he painted because as you spoke to it was fairly graphic i'm sure that kind of sent some ripple effects throughout america hey thomas here just a quick heads up we're about to get into the more graphic section of the jungle which depicts early slaughterhouse conditions so if this doesn't sound like the thing for you please feel free to fast forward to around the 12 minute mark all right back to the show So it centers around um, this little immigrant, uh, Jurgis, I think is how it's pronounced, and how he goes through a series of jobs in the meatpacking industry, starting with one in the killing beds, where you have this, the actual killing part of the process. So it was unheated. So they, all the workers would have to try and wrap themselves up as much as possible, but they would end up with numb hands. So they wouldn't be able to handle the knives well. And they'd be constantly cutting themselves and injuring themselves. Animals that weren't fully stunned would be like wildly violent and spasming as they were trying to kill them with these like inaccurate knife cuts. Mm -hmm. The cold air mixing with the steam from the hot animal blood would make it almost impossible to see. They weren't given anywhere to eat that was clean. There was nowhere sort of provided. They weren't even talking about providing food. They were just providing a clean room to eat. So they would have to attempt to maybe f- go and find a nearby saloon, which Sinclair critiqued because of his hatred of alcohol. But also, if you stayed there, you'd end up eating and sort of c- there's nowhere to wash hands and people were paid on commission. So speed was all important and all encompassing. So people would end up just consuming raw cow's blood with their meals um, and all sorts of other offal that comes with the slaughtering process. So you end up with this scene of high risk of knife injuries, illness from consumption and sort of like lack of sort of any protective wear for the workers and elements of commission that completely drove speed and pace above all else. We see this again later. His mother-in-law, Jurgis's mother-in-law has take a job and she works with the machines and a tour goes by them and talks about how incredible the machines are. And that's sort of juxtaposed with these workers going as fast as they can to stuff these sausages with these like completely numb faces, just injuries left and right. And so this setting, you see how the mixture of wouldn't necessarily be immediately clear from a video um, becomes clear when you realize the incentive structures in these places, the lack of protections in these places, the cost-cutting measures like not heated rooms to slaughter the cows in the middle of winter in Chicago, and how they all create this incredibly dangerous setting which only gets worse because Jurgis is injured and has to leave the killing pets. And he has to switch to a later job working um, in the fertilizer plant where the last bits of the livestock, the remnants after the slaughtering process are turned into bone phosphate and other byproducts, which is basically done by crushing bones. And he at times is shoveling this bone dust and it's rising up into the air and the sickening fumes of these chemical processes. And you can't breathe. You can't see. You're just covered and infused with filth. 
there was images of open boiling vats to cook the meat in, um, where if you fell in, you just die. There were, and in all of this, what captured in terms of reception, which is the question you asked, what captured the uh, minds of the American audience after they were reading his publication were sections like the fact that sometimes rats would fall in. Jeez. Sometimes they would just chuck in random pieces of meat that had been dragged across the floor and not necessarily cleaned properly. That if someone got their finger chopped off, it would end up in there probably. If it was part of the process, they wouldn't throw out a whole vat for that. And that type of adulteration, additionally with all of this, the filth and the unsanitary settings became the focus of the media response almost completely of the media public discourse centered on almost entirely that portion of this tale. None of this intense suffering and struggling of the communities actually working, but instead just the focus on the final product and how it might be adulterated. There wasn't even very much discussion of animal treatment or animal rights at that time. It was largely and almost completely focused on just whether or not the meat being produced was actually the meat that was being sold. Um, discussions of whether or not the American like population was being cheated became into effect a lot. Whether they were being poisoned came into the sort of the national discourse um, with largely these groups of Eastern European and Lithuanian immigrants going completely unmentioned in the workforce, which was Sinclair's sort of stated goal of the text was to talk about the workers. And the, func the function of the text ultimately was to talk only about adulteration of food. So I would imagine that meat sales tanked after this. I mean, how could they not with these details revealed? I don't quite understand how anyone could go forward. I mean, certainly there was still a market, but I imagine that it was, it was greatly uh, reduced or at least to a significant degree by these new details. So is it accurate in saying that sales plummeted after this or what was the market response like? So there was a lot of outcry and a lot of reliance on hopeful government changes in oversight. So meat sales did decrease after this publication. I don't have the exact numbers on hand, but they did act pretty quickly since the book was the manuscripts of the book, 1905, the publication in 1906. That was also when the Pure Food and Drug Act was proposed as well as the Meat Inspection Act, which were sort of two food safety regulations pushed immediately following this, which is not to say that this is the genesis of the movement about food adulteration that had been going on since 1890, at least with a popular treatise on the extent and character of food adulteration, which was focused entirely on chemical additives and things like that, that were being put into food that people that weren't being listed and were potentially hazardous to the community consuming it. Uh, and a number of individuals were pushing this movement and pushing the government to have better oversight, which was facing a lot of resistance. I mean, people like Congressman James Wadsworth was a cattleman on the Agricultural Committee in Congress who made it very difficult for things like this to pass, which is a story that I'm sure we can feel familiar with these days with seemingly an unending carousel of ex-lobbyists getting jobs in government. But that sort of thing was still present back then. And it caused a lot of things, a lot of problems for um, these acts to go up against, which the publication of the jungle helped a lot. Similarly, massive letter campaigns to Roosevelt. Uh, at one point, Roosevelt was quoted saying something along the lines of, I don't have the exact quote here, but something along the lines of, I want Sinclair to go home so I can just run the country for a day because Sinclair had been so active in attempting to act, like cause change in this area 
So it was sort of this book is was not the beginning of this movement, but it's what got these initial bills passed, partly because it's so clearly focused the ire at this one product in terms of meat, um, as opposed to maybe the more general adulteration concerns that some of the greater group had of the sort of the pu- the the food purity activists had, which were about sort of all the whole food industry as opposed to just meat, which is where Sinclair focused his efforts. So this piece is disseminated and the public's eyes are opened to the injustices that surround meat packing in Korea in the early to mid 20th century. Uh, who picks up the mantle of the organizing efforts following Peace's emergence? Is Sinclair central to the movement afterwards or does it become a issue that the workers take up? Where does the movement go after that? So this is is really interesting. And it's a lot of people argue some about how effective a lot of these changes have been and how much stuff has changed. After the progressive era, which you're talking about where a lot of this focus falls, there was a number of good changes following this. Unions got a little bit stronger regarding a lot of this. Groups like the United Packing House Workers of America were able to improve pay. And this was later into the 1930s, maybe towards the 1980s. Things in some manners became better um, in some ways. Wages went up a little bit, not as much as you would. I mean, general wages haven't been increasing as much as they should be in regards to inflation. And the meatpacking industry is no difference. However, it was better back then because that issue hadn't compounded so much and unions were gaining more power. But there wasn't a lot of change in terms of government oversight. Mm formally speaking, in a lot of this time. But there were a lot of other sort of less formal changes. There were much better distribution channels and things like that. So a lot changed. But what ends up happening is in some cases, union progress that may have been started by this by these initial movements actually begins to turn in some ways later as you see these distribution channels move from once again, the cities where you had where the trains had allowed, where rail lines had allowed for um, the beef packing industry to move to centers like Chicago. Now a transition from trail distri- from train distribution to truck distribution results in the scattering of meat packing and slaughterhouses out in like throughout the country, which breaks up groups in terms of ability to organize. People still have unions and some presence, but it definitely makes it harder. Additionally, focus on labor continues to pull from immigrant communities that may have different work statuses. Um, so it makes it another sort of barrier to effective organization. And so on compounding all of this, you see that the pressure of competition resulted in these various companies trying to slim their margins down as much as possible and instead focus entirely on pressuring worker speed and efficiency and cutting labor costs which resulted in higher hazards for workers, even as these companies grew and seemed even more successful in this new model of more of like less centralized meatpacking. And a lot of times these companies would be getting these federal fines sort of laid out in these previous attempts to regulate this and just paying them because that was just part of their budget Mm. would be to just pay the fines and not change the conditions. So that sort of that progress has continued to compound to a degree that many who sort of analyze this would say that the current situation isn't very different than what was put forward by the jungle. Some technology has changed. Some worker oversight has changed. It hasn't become, at least in my opinion, much less of a black box in terms of 
what the public knows about it, which I think is part of why you see movies like Food Inc. come out and these efforts to make change. Um, although those efforts seem to be like many tend to sort of turn into focuses just on the final product and not necessarily on the workers making it and just whether or not the beef is beef and whether or not the beef was treated well. I mean, yeah, I'll give you that. Like, it definitely does seem like the majority of the movement is still focused on like the final product. But it also seems as though today we are almost seeing and experiencing the response that Sinclair would have expected to play out in the wake of the Jungle's publication. Consumers like are increasingly curious about plant-based diets for both health and environmental reasons. Meatless Mondays have become a routine for many. There even exists this curiosity that I'm sure you can attest to surrounding locality and seasonality. I mean, for all we know, this could be the golden age of plant-based meats and meat alternatives. Now, I will say that this is not the beginning. Um, if we wish to trace the rise of the plant-based food industry and its acceleration after Sinclair's work, we must consider the unsuspecting character, John Harvey Kellogg. And if I could just provide a little background on Kellogg, he's an interesting fella. He's best known as one of the founders of the Kellogg Company. Uh, he was born to a family of shopkeepers and devout Seventh-day Adventists in Battle Creek, Michigan. In his younger years, he worked closely with one of the founders of the church, James White, to provide a weekly paper called The Health Reformer, uh, which advocated for temperance, vegetarianism, integrative medicine, things of the like. This was formative in Kellogg's upbringing as it inspired him to attain a medical degree and later open a faith-based health center and spa by the name of Battle Creek Sanitarium. It was here in 1896 that Kellogg began experimenting with food products aimed at healing the mind, body, and soul. Of those experiments, there came a product by the name of Nutos. In the words of Kellogg, this was a thoroughly cooked and sterilized product of nuts, chiefly peanuts, that resembled a cheesy mass. But this was so much more than cheesy mass. It was the predecessor for what would become an impressive lineage of plant-based meat companies and products. With this in mind, I find it surprising that this brewing movement, later galvanized by Sinclair's work, did not like have this massive uptick in the adoption of this plant-based diet after this work was published. Instead, we see now this response in the form of Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. Does this strike you as strange? I, I think that this sort of notes, uh, notes on this, like an element of continuity that we see is that it's, it's like it should, it feels like it, it is surprising that there wasn't as much of a decrease in meat sales and there wasn't as much of an actual uptick in alternative thoughts. But at the same time, back then we see similar things that we see now about discussions of like fad diets, questions of nutrient, like nutritional intake, what works, what doesn't, which is something that has been going on for a long time. I mean, back then, like we see, like Kellogg, for example, um, his other pursuits aside, proposing some like meat alternative options. But like the same rhetoric that people hear now about this, that, or the other diet, whatever they may be, being called a fad or being called like non healthy, because all of this science is very difficult to sort of nail down, was happening back then too. Um, like Sinclair, for example, um, described to one diet where it suggested like excessive mastication and that the, that would like help him avoid cancer was that if he chewed his food a lot. So there was, I think a lot of this was just the result that the same sort of
sort of torrent of nutritional information and dietary suggestions mixed with industry issues and moral issues and now environmental issues makes it very difficult to actually see an alternative option that makes sense because there's so much information being sort of spun around. And I feel like it's meat is so deeply present in the, like the U S sort of like food imagination that it's very hard to get it to really shift off and to move in another direction, particularly if there's not like incredibly like robust, healthy alternatives being readily presented. So I think it's, it's not ultimately, it's not that surprising that the shift wasn't that effective. Just because well, the government ostensibly tried to um, regulate this and the changes were mitigated drastically by the meat industry. So like imagine the, the sort of the PR arena of people trying to adjust what they eat and what they're seeing even before it, like the data deluge of the internet. But the shift to d- that we're seeing today, it's not necessarily driven by the still present injustices that that were outlined in the jungle. It's not as though people have suddenly resonated with poor working conditions, the low pay, the harassment, the the sexual abuse accusations, things like that. We're also seeing within this a shift from not just meat alternatives, but to plant-based meats, the meats that the, the faux meats that so closely resemble meats in terms of texture, cooking quality, mouthfeel, things like that. But we're not seeing it, the change motivated by these still present injustices. If anything, it's the environmental appeal. From an environmental standpoint, the meat industry is highly inefficient. You know, the the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization estimate that 70% of the world's farmland is used for animal production but only 17% of those calories consumed worldwide are derived from this particular sector. And then you get into the negative health effects, whether that be cardiovascular issues, cancers, diabetes, things like that, that come from these, these high protein red meat diets. And then you factor in the environmental stress and, and you enter in this kind of like meat paradox where it's like people understand that meat is not necessarily good for people or planet in at least the amount that we consume it, but still production remains high. But today we see that plant-derived meats are serving up this ethical appeal of sorts that promises, you know, smaller carbon footprint. And people are really getting behind this. It's as though the market is essentially innovating around the issues that so poignantly characterize the meat industry today. And and I think that's interesting. It's like a certain type of denial and unwillingness to address the long-term and long-existing issues that we face. And instead of addressing them, we are diverting our efforts to go in a different direction, one of of plant-derived meats. And I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that... It's a very good point because the question about how we respond to these issues always seems to get caught up. I mean, there's always argues of pragmatism, what can sell, what can't sell. And right now we're seeing if this jumps in this direction and somehow a full shift away from meat happens, which I doubt and I don't think necessarily is the ultimate solution, but that's not something that I necessarily, I don't necessarily know where we should go. But the question about where we're going next is that a lot of the same 
issues in my mind arise. I mean, yes, we can talk about the environmental concerns that are really underscore a lot of the issues of the meat industry and seem to be a lot of the driving force to the uh, meat alternative option. But there's also, if we don't talk about the labor concerns and the land allocation concerns and all of these other issues, what we see is the very much potential for just continuity from one set of meatpacking companies in the 19, like the early 1900s to another one in the 1980s. And now we see once again concentration in like Tyson, Purdue, this like handful of meat industries. And then from there, maybe if a shift did happen, what's without labor concerns and these greater questions that were made abundantly clear were problems in the meatpacking industry? How do we know those don't just get shifted on to replacement meat industry? Yeah. We're just having this. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point because we're seeing. That very same concentration of power surrounding the two primary players in the plant-derived meat industry, those being Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, you know, they've cornered the market largely because of the first mover advantages that they have been, I guess, both fortunate and unfortunate to experience. But the the market for meat substitutes is is projected to be valued at $2.5 billion by the year 2023. and Sure, there are smaller actors out there, but there's very much so a concentration around these two forces. And it's like, have we learned from our past and, and, and how this concentration of power, at least in the food industry, plays out and the compromises that come with it? Uh, people want delicious, meaning that they, uh, they want products that taste similar to meat, maybe without the, the guilt that comes with meat for some, but they also want it cheap. And those pressures, you know, drive business decisions. And yeah, that's very, yeah, that's very true. It raises the question, how do we best cater to the consumer and also the environment while trying to remain profitable in in such a cutthroat industry. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's very it's like the question would ultimately be like if this transition got switched, we already we've seen what happens when issues of labor gets brought up in comparison with issues of food adulteration and meat. The focus is only on the food adulteration because that's what the consumers consume. They don't consume the labor at least not in their mind. Then later we see it again with we see there was an early 2000s documentary that was one of the first times that like the human rights watch targeted a US industry to say that the US meat and poultry plants were violating human rights and basic like worker rights because of the conditions were so poor and then again we see food inc and this and we see so one after another you see issues of labor placed largely together with issues of food quality and so if you and now with environmental issues on top of that, if you remove the food quality and the environmental issues in a new industry of meat, then or like meat replacements, then once again, I just see the labor issue, the potential labor issues just falling away, particularly as you see like these new replacement meat like industries get bigger and bigger and bigger, the more untouchable they get, the more difficult it's going to be. To sort of encounter or face that because who wants to see necessarily like who's going to, if we've, we've already seen these types of like responses, who's going to care to watch a documentary 
about just the fact that the people working are having a hard time when everything else about the product that they get, as you said, cheap, healthy, and guilt-free is there. And that's what seems to be happening in a lot of these discussions of the meatpacking industry. And all of this is that guilt-free is about PETA people talking about animal rights. It's about environmental people not inflicting on ant like on the environment because of methane or food efficiency. And it's the guilt-free thing just completely has cut out the labor force who produces the meat. And that goes for the whole situation. That goes for how farmers are treated and cattle ranchers are treated. That goes for how slaughterhouse workers are treated. That goes for how meatpacking and like the final workers are treated. The whole network is made to be as reduced as possible and as slim profit margins as possible, which ultimately a cow is a cow. What they end up reducing most of the time is the labor costs. And the guilt-free argument has been entirely focused on animal rights. And then there's environmental concerns. And that seems to be the issues that people raise. It's not the fact that there are these like greater things. Those never catch on in the larger mindset when people get angry about the meat industry or when people yell at each other for eating a burger when they should be having something else. Um, and I think that that's the same concerns that could continue if we just have guilt-free option, which is already how everything's being marketed. And I don't even, I don't necessarily know the labor conditions in these new businesses, but I think there is a general trend in businesses that start out when they're smaller, they treat their workers pretty well. When they get bigger, they start to treat them increasingly less well. Are you, are you um, speaking think, to these new plant alternative and plant-based companies, or are you talking about modern-day meat processors? Well, modern-day meat processors, from everything I can tell, treat their workers basically just as badly as they were in the jungle. I really? don't think that that has really changed. Um, Not even from what I can tell. Oversight. From, or any of the, the not not really functionally no. I mean, you see massive sort of focuses on immigrant labor who have far fewer like avenues for legal vindication in any sort of labor disputes. You then they're harder to necessarily organize because of fears, particularly now when they're like just making ice this massive monolithic thing that can just if like you you put your like you're putting your name on anything. There's a concern that they'll be able to find you and deport you. So there's all of this presence that it's just... And if you're talking, as we've established and discussed, that it all comes down to margins and profit margins. If you have a workforce that's not protected, that's unfortunately just good business, it seems, is accepted. The accepted norm is to just completely remove the humanity from these people. And that's what we see. So I feel like there are greater concerns here, but food as something that we fundamentally need as a country tends to be focused in these weird depictions of what guilt-free is or what these concerns are. And I guess ultimately my argument is a little bit, or not my argument, but what we're noticing here is a little bit not presumptive, but it's raising a concern about a possible future that's supported by the present, which is that these Industries that produce food focus entirely, as most industries do, on the final product that you see on the shelves of the grocery store. And that if they can cover that with as many labels of non-GMO, organic, this or that, you begin to forget who put it on the grocery store shelf and how it got there. Um, and I think that that issue is what we see very well placed 
are very well showcased in the meatpacking industry. So how is it then, in your opinion, that we might be able to end this study of the jungle through a retrospective lens? What will it take that we might see and study and understand the jungle and its lessons, not such that it's only in a vacuum, but that we understand the, the present day implications? Uh, what, what will it take? The focus right now, in terms of consumer protections and anti-adulteration laws and things like that, are based entirely on the final product. Almost entirely on the final product. And I think that the lessons from the jungle and what Sinclair tried to very clearly do is that you have to... People have to have a greater interaction with their supply chain. And this is about transparency. This is about oversight. And it's about the fact that it's very easy to only be concerned with the product you buy and what it does to you. And that's the issue is that the, every product you buy, it's also everything that product has done. But this is also an issue where I'm not sure if conscientious consumption is the whole takeaway from this. Conscious consumption is something that's possible, but it doesn't solve an issue. And the issue is just that. I mean, it's hard to say just a specific takeaway lesson. Right no, here. I mean, that's perfectly understandable. Uh, it, it's, it's a hard yeah. question to entertain. I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking about is I don't know if we necessarily need another jungle to be published because as, as you made note of multiple times, not much has changed, but I don't know if we necessarily need another Sinclair to go inside of these, inside the meatpacking industry, inside these, these, production and processing centers, I feel like the second wave of the movement and, and it might be carried out by companies like Possible Meat, but is a largely a market-based response an organizing of consumers that choose to vote with their dollar. And because they've taken it upon themselves to educate themselves on the conditions that you've highlighted today, that it, it's going to be something that comes from that. I mean, sure, as, as you said, conscientious consumption is only a starting point, but I feel like we might be leaning on the market more to change the way uh, that meat is consumed and produced in this country. But also, there's an inadequacy to it because we have to factor in the change that this situation necessitates is going to be one that is legislative and one that, you know, works to center around a industry that acknowledges the inherent value of, of its workers and coming up with the blueprint for that is, is not quite so easy. Yeah. And I think that what I would temper that with is that that's a very accurate, I think that's a very important thing for a lot of people to work on. And that's from the top down and sort of like working from the, what you decide to buy or who you can like advocate for in legislature. But I think there also has to be a, an organizing element to this. I think that you talk about getting that you mentioned like the importance of like getting things cheaply for the American consumer. And I think what has to happen is an organized, like an organizational thing that, because the best way is to sort of when to approach these issues is to come at it from both points to work legislatively, to work hopefully in terms of what you consume, but also to organize from the bottom up to communicate with labor forces. Um, and unions, because oftentimes they, 
They know the things that you can't know about an industry. They know the things that should inform what you buy or what you don't buy. You have to communicate with the unions and the laborers to actually get a sense of what this situation is. Um, and I think that that's part of why, like you said very well, is that we don't need a new jungle. All the text, all the evidence is out there that the system is wildly, wildly too powerful and inc- like wildly under, um, underregulated and total lacking of oversight. But what has to happen is a both top down and bottom up approach in terms of labor organization and just a greater involvement in people deciding what to buy. But there is always that issue where conscientious consumption only works to a degree. But if you can't afford to buy the product that, that treats its labor force in a better way, then you just, you still need to eat. And that's the tricky issue with food is that it sort of situates itself at the core of all of these issues and is why this industry is so difficult to engage with is because it has to be there, at least in some capacity. A food production line has to exist. So it's not like, unfortunately, it's not like a lot of other products that if people just don't buy it, it will face bankruptcy or closure. What will happen is that the government, as it has in the past, will probably step in and help out with subsidies and things like that, which is what they've done for food industry things when they've been facing difficult times throughout history. I mean, and the reality um, of that, so that is that yeah. those subsidies will largely cater to the big four and the big six that are still around today. And that obviously leaves the smaller scale out of the mix. Sure, the plant-derived and plant-alternative uh, industries are, you know, leading a path forward. But also, there's there's people within the industry that are, are trying to reverse the narrative. And I think it's important to support them in, in their efforts as well. That is something else to chew on. All right, and that's all for today's episode of Sustained. Special thanks to my co-hosts Lucas and Hudson Miller of Hound Logo and Print Shop. Thanks again for our awesome new logo. Show us work some love by visiting www.hound2020.com. That is www.hound2020.com. And thanks, of course, to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Be well.